Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's hard for me to imagine what life must have been like before artificial light. For most of human history, we didn't have anything to give us light to see except for the sun or fire. And so our rhythms of life were much more dependent upon the sun and its rhythms. When the sun goes down, it would be dark. That's all there was to it. You'd have to wait for it to come back up in order to be able to see again. Now, of course, you could have torches or lamps, but they would only put out so much light. So we really did have to make hay while the sun was shining. And crime is more frequent where there is less light. Shady activities are easier to be kept from being discovered in the dark. And that's why most violent crimes and burglary happen at night. It wasn't actually until 1809 that the first electric carbon arc lamp was invented. And these arc lamps put out really bright but really harsh light. And they burned out in about a day. In the late 1800s, the governing authorities installed these arc lamps up high on towers in order to illuminate large areas of American cities. One tower in Minneapolis, Minnesota was 275 feet tall and was estimated to be as bright as 32,000 candles. They called them moonlight towers. They were expensive, really high maintenance, not very efficient. And so they started phasing them out eventually in the early 1900s as technology improved. But if you would like to see some of these moonlight towers, some of them do still exist in Austin, Texas. Apparently they still have parties there from time to time. But the goal behind putting up these moonlight towers was to help stifle crime. If immorality thrives in the darkness, shining a light into that darkness should discourage that immoral behavior. And a similar principle is playing out spiritually in today's sermon text. The Apostle Paul reminds the Christians in the city of Rome that they belong to the daytime. They are people of the light. When Jesus resurrected to life, he ushered in the dawn of a new day that will never end. The eighth day of a new creation. His resurrection was the first act of a new creation. And all of history is inevitably barreling towards that day when the city of God completely and permanently drives out all darkness from the cities of man. And that city has no need of a sun nor of moon towers to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That day gets closer and closer every day. And Paul's instructing this church in Rome, and the Holy Spirit is instructing us here this morning 
that we need to lean into the light of our final destination. We should leave the darkness in the past where it belongs and orient the direction of our lives in the here and now towards the light of that future day. The big idea of this sermon this morning is this. Life in Christ is befitting of who we are becoming. Life in Christ is befitting of who we are becoming. And we'll look at this in three sections in these verses. First, we're instructed to maintain armed vigilance against depravity, verses 11 and 12. Second, live like you know depravity is dark, in verse 13. And then in verse 14, we're told to continually clothe ourselves in Christ, not in Adam. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning, for the lamp that it is to our feet, the light that it is to our path. We pray that you would help us this morning to, to stay awake, stay conscious, uh, not just to the sermon, but, but to your Holy Spirit this morning, what you might be speaking into our hearts as we meet with you through your word by your spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, maintain armed vigilance against depravity. 11 and 12, let me just read that again. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then... Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So Paul uses this contrasting metaphor of light and darkness, of day and night, of wakefulness and sleep to make a point about Christian ethics. He's talking about how we should live as Christians. Because we are awake and final salvation is getting increasingly closer every day, we should be casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. Last Sunday, Pastor Stephen helped us understand the call to fulfill the law by loving one another from the verses that came just before this, verses 8 through 10. And these verses this morning are sort of building on that idea and putting a bow on it. We love one another and our neighbor because we know what time it is. We have heard the rooster crow, as it were. We know that it's time to be awake. When the Christian is born again, he or she sees the light. No more darkness, no more night. There's an awareness of how dark it was before the lights got flipped on in your mind and in your heart. I was having a conversation with a guy just this last week who was passing through town, and he told me about an experience that he had one night a few months ago. He was doing some shady stuff, with the wrong crowd, doing something that he knew was sinful and harmful, And he said something happened that night that made him truly recognize the depravity that he was engaged in for what it actually was. And he became conscious of the darkness and the evil. And it was so scary and shocking and dark to him that he vowed never to return to that place or to those activities. He said, there is no way I am ever going back to that. He woke from his sleep. And so I take this verse to be this waking from slumber 
to be what happens when we're born again, when God shines his light abroad in our hearts. There's a new consciousness of good and evil, not as we have defined it, but as God and his law has defined it. We become aware of how much darkness is in us, and we want to run towards the light, away from sin, and toward holiness. So the Christian is born again, raised from death to life, and then raised to walk in newness of life. Of course, Jesus said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that, that life of revelation, that light that Jesus is, that light that Jesus brings, gives us a knowledge of what is good, what is pleasing, what is right. We recognize what time it is, and we realize that the sun is coming up. The time of our final salvation is nearer now than it, was, than it was when we first came to faith. That would be true for each of us. That day of final salvation is going to be one day closer today than it was yesterday. It doesn't matter who you are, whether we're referring to the return of Christ or speaking just of our own being called home by Christ. That day of salvation is coming closer. By the end of this service, salvation will be nearer to us than when we started. And all of human history is barreling towards that day, bounding towards it. Not even just all of history, your personal history is bounding toward that day. The night is passing away, and that day is approaching. So then, he says in verse 12, because that is true, let us cast off the works of darkness. Maybe you can imagine waking from a deep sleep and realizing that there's a snake in your sheets. What would you do? Well, you would yelp and jump out of bed and fling the sheets like as far away from you as possible. That's what I would do anyway. It's kind of what I picture here. Like the lights have been turned on and you see what you've been sleeping with and you want to get away from it. This is sort of what I'm picturing here. Like clothes that have been sprayed by a skunk. You take them off and let's be honest, it's probably just, just burn them. Those clothes are done now. You're, there's no getting those back. You become aware of the darkness of depravity and you want nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with that. You're shaken from enjoying the dark, harmful pleasures of this passing moment and then you're driven towards valuing what is good and righteous, those better pleasures that can be had in foretastes now and are expected in the day to come. Even though we're awake, we see that the light from that, that future day of Christ is leaking backward into the present. There is still a lingering tendency in the Christian life to hit snooze and to roll over. We know this is true because if it wasn't, Paul wouldn't have to tell us this. We know that this is a tendency. This is why Paul reminds Christians to put on the armor of light. The armor of light. The same word behind armor here in this verse is translated in the ESV in 2 Corinthians twice as weapons. So you could rightly say, put on the weapons, arm yourself with the weapons of light. Armor of light, weapons of light, either way, instruments of spiritual and moral battle. Let me speak to younger folks for a minute here. Uh, younger women are increasingly being driven into anxiety 
and depression at astonishing rates. Young men are being driven towards apathy and disengaging from reality through distraction. I'm speaking in broad categories here. Both, in some sense, don't know where to look for meaning in their lives. What am I here for? Is everything all just simply pointless? How should we think about the future? And what they often hear about what to think about the future is like, well, you don't have to worry about it. You don't need to worry about the future at all. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is the resounding chorus that we all hear, but it seems to be sinking into the hearts of the young in a particularly unique way. That is the resounding chorus of your friends in real life, perhaps, definitely on social media. They're singing you a lullaby. They want you to go back to sleep. Truly great men and women are known for the control of their desires. But the constant refrain of the world today is give in to your desires, which is, of course, the exact opposite. Self-control and temperance are boring and lame. What is awesome is authentic self-expression. That is the most important thing to pursue in your life. It's a trap. Meaning is not found there. Every encouragement to harbor bitterness, every encouragement to rebel against loving authority in your life, every encouragement to covet what others have or to steal from others or to commit adultery, all of it has the effect of counting sheep in your life. They're whispering to you, go back to sleep. Like Dorothy falling asleep in the poppy field just outside of Oz. Or the enchanted ground where Christian and hopeful become drowsy and lethargic in Pilgrim's Progress. Hear the call from Scripture and the Holy Spirit this morning. Don't go back to sleep. You're in a war for your life. And we're almost home. There's an urgency to this. The light is just up ahead. Don't give up. Don't go back to sleep. The clock is ticking down and you have responsibilities. You have a responsibility to yourself, to others. You have a responsibility before God to grab and arm yourself with those weapons of righteousness, of light in your right hand and in your left hand and to engage in the battle that you've been called into. Make sacrifices. Act as a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1, right? The Christian life is one of sacrifice. Make a sacrifice in your life by loving others well. Deny your own sinful gratification and run towards the light. Rise to the call of duty. This is where meaning is found in your life, friends. Encourage others to keep up the good fight, pulling them along with you. The Christian life is difficult as times. We sing about that, actually, from time to time. We want to have an accurate portrayal of what Christian discipleship looks like. It is difficult. It is war, but it is worth it. Christ has already slayed the dragon. So in the final analysis, we know that we're on the winning side. But until that last day comes in its fullness, we have to maintain armed vigilance against depravity. Watching that we don't fall back asleep elbowing our brothers and sisters in the ribs if they begin to nod off, defending and extending the light 
Now you might be thinking, okay, I'm convinced that my Christian life will take on more meaning as I embrace the difficulty of my responsibility to put on this armor or weapons of light and to get into that battle. But how do I do that? How do I engage in the battle? How do I practically Monday morning, Friday night, what does it look like to be engaged in this war? Let's read verse 13. Second, live like you know depravity is dark. Verse 13 says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Scripture consistently uses the concept of walking as a metaphor for living. Walking describes the direction of one's life, and so to walk properly is to live in a way that adorns the gospel, a fitting way that is proper, that is decent. You're in the daytime, act accordingly. If you belong to the daytime and you're heading toward that bright land where there is no more darkness, well, then you should be leaning into that future light even now. Live in a way that is befitting of who you are becoming. Paul lays out six vices in verse 13 that are paired together in twos. So we'll just look at them as sets of twos, three sets of twos. We'll just think about each of these for a few minutes. So we are awake now. We know depravity is dark. So let's see how these vices inform how we are to be involved in that armed vigilance of the Christian life. A, gluttony is vile. What the ESV translates as orgies, other translations call carousing or rioting or wild parties. These Roman Christians would have been well aware of a a culture that surrounded them that encouraged them to engage in pagan religious rituals which were characterized by gluttony. Gluttony means excessive eating and drinking. It's an immoderate desire like a a raccoon or a wolverine that just gulps up whatever it sees. Eating and drinking are not inherently sinful. Scripture does not absolutely forbid the consumption of alcohol. It does, however, consistently forbid drunkenness. Drinking isn't forbidden, only its excessive use. Drunkenness is wrong in and of itself, but it also leads and gives birth to other wicked things like sexual immorality or to crude speech. It inhibits the ability to be sober-minded and vigilant against other sinful desires. In a similar way, eating is not wrong in and of itself. Feasting is not a problem. We actually look forward to feasting with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah talks about that feast of the wedding lamb. Isaiah 25 verse 6 says this, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. I'm glad to have a reservation made for that meal. But the one who is a glutton is a partier who has no concern for tomorrow. He's wasting his life 
thinking that the most important point of life is merely to eat and drink. The problem of gluttony is using food or alcohol to distract us from God. Our responsibilities towards others or to dull our spiritual awareness. Eating and drinking are good gifts and bad gods. They're meant to point us back to the giver so that we can thank God for them and to enjoy them appropriately. To make your appetite your God is to pursue a meaningless life. Paul says, hey, you've been saved out of that pointless lifestyle. Don't go back into it. Don't relapse back into it. You should actually be repulsed by it. The next two words describe sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is nasty. Sleeping around and sensuality. As with food and drink, sex is not inherently sinful. It is a good gift meant to be enjoyed in the way that God says it should be enjoyed between a husband and wife. But that appropriate desire can become inordinate or it can become out of control. To be conformed to this present age is to be convinced that you cannot be fully human without giving full expression to your sexuality. That's a trap too. 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that celibacy is not a hindrance to your joy. This is particularly important for those who struggle with same-sex attraction and are seeking to rightly order their loves and to follow Christ in lifelong celibacy. That does not make you less of a human. Jesus was truly human and never married. Sex is a good gift to be rightly enjoyed in the appropriate context. But here's what Paul is calling out here, sexual immorality. That would include things like adultery, fornication, homosexual behavior, bestiality, pornography. And this is not because God is a killjoy. That's not the point. It's because he knows how he ordered nature. And he knows what's best for us. He knows what brings actual lasting joy. To use his creation outside of its intended design is to think that we know better than our creator. Sexual immorality is to use other humans as a means of indulging your own misplaced desires. When you become entitled to fulfill your desires at whatever cost is necessary, that is a perversion of something that was good. It's not loving. It does not lead to a meaningful life. And it is not befitting of who you are becoming. It's characteristic of works of darkness that you've been saved out of into the light. One particularly dark and potentially secret area of sexual perversion is pornography, as I mentioned. You might know that pornography is unloving and harmful. You might know that it can hurt your relationships with others, how it can reprogram your brain chemistry, how it, it can cause stress personally, how it can pervert your understanding of what is good and right, how it can promote violence, how it's often a contributing factor in divorce? Do you know that it's an offense towards a holy God? Do you know that it has a lethal effect on your spiritual life? Some of you might be in despair about that even this morning. Remember the gospel. Jesus hasn't run out of mercy. Run to Jesus and don't be surprised when he welcomes you with open arms. Darkness and secrecy 
are Satan's ways of manipulating you into cultivating and coddling sin rather than fighting it. So my charge to you, men and women, is to grab the weapons of light. Seek help. There's power in confession to a brother or sister in Christ. You can visit covenanteyes.com to get accountability. Strive21.com to commit to a 21-day detox. A couple helpful books, Pure in Heart, Sexual Sin and the Promises of God by Garrett Kell or Rescue Plan, Charting a Course to Restore Prisoners of Pornography by Deepak Reju, Jonathan Holmes. Of course, you can come tomorrow night at 7 p.m. in the office lounge for a Hope for Addictions meeting too. There are weapons that are available to you. Arm yourself and be prepared to take a patient journey towards wholeness. It's possible. Don't give up hope. Let's continue to make this place, this congregation, a great place to have honest, patient, and understanding relationships and conversations where we can work through our problems together in light of the gospel. The next two paired words described quarreling and jealousy or dissension and fury. C, quarreling is obscene. At first glance, these two sins don't seem like the others. Those first four seemed of a different kind of these. A and B are easy to understand. Well, yes, those are sins of darkness. Those are sins of the night. But causing dissension, tearing apart community, is strife and jealousy really of the same order of depravity as gluttony or sexual immorality? The common theme, I think, that ties together all of these sins, which really are just building on the list that Paul gave to us in Romans chapter 1, is that they reflect a life that has little awareness of or gratitude to God. Each of them betrays a lack of self-control, but quarreling and jealousy are more easily self-justified, aren't they? One Christian author, Jerry Bridges, writes about how jealousy and anger and judgmentalism, selfishness, these sins sometimes are seen as quote-unquote respectable sins. They're readily acceptable because they're harder to detect as being obviously sinful. So in the same way that eating sex aren't sinful in themselves, taking a stand for righteousness is not wrong, that's a good thing, but having a hair trigger for anger is a symptom of the destructive sin of pride. Slander and anger towards brothers and sisters is the opposite of what we're called to do to fulfill the law by loving our neighbors as ourselves. And friends, we know that our economy is largely built on uh, and increasingly built on getting our attention. One easy way to get our attention is quarrelsomeness. Cable news has turned into quarrelsomeness and it's just become a sport now. And it's a way that they can make money because they can gain your attention through quarrelsomeness. This too, friends, is a trap. Don't be conformed to this. We should see quarrelsomeness as obscene to the Christian life as any other sin described here. It is not befitting 
of who we are becoming. Do you notice how all of these vices in verse 13 really are the opposite of loving your neighbor? To break God's law is to harm others. And so quarreling and jealousy are sins that invite repentance before the prince of peace. And so if you'd like help putting on the weapons of light to push back against your anger, there's a good book in our bookstall about it, a, a small book about a big problem by Ed Welch. You can find it online as well. Small book about a big problem. It's a 50-day devotional, and it is a small book. Short chapters, uh, and it's meant to be a, a way to help you consider introspectively how you might begin to increasingly repent of anger and bitterness. Here, too, change is possible. Don't give up hope. And Paul's going to dig deeper into issues of quarreling and jealousy in chapters 14 and 15. But for now, let's just look at this final verse of chapter 13, where we are told to continually clothe ourselves in Christ, not Adam. Three, continually clothe yourself in Christ, not Adam. Verse 14 says this, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There was once a man named Augustine who grew up in the fourth century in the Roman province of North Africa. And as a young man, Augustine's life was characterized by the sins laid out in verse 13. He bounced around to different philosophers trying to find the meaning of life. And uh, one of the places he was attracted to was a church. And so he went to go hear this particularly gifted preacher named Ambrose preach. Ambrose was a gifted orator, and so he thought, well, this would be great. I can at least go and hear a good speech. But as Augustine went to hear this Christian bishop, he sat under that preaching and began to grow in his understanding of scripture and doctrine. He began to be attracted to it. And when he was 31 years old or so, he was sitting outdoors pondering the big questions of life, looking for meaning in life, and he overhears the voice of a child saying, pick it up and read it. Pick it up and read it. He doesn't know where this voice is coming from. He thought maybe it was somebody singing a song. I've never heard that song before, but it was weird, so... He says, well, I'm I'm going to take that message as a prompt to pick up the Bible and to read it. And so he does. He picks up the Bible and he reads it. And the first passage he lays eyes on is Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. So this passage where it says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so as his eyes lay there, he sees it and he said he felt his heart being flooded with light. That's how he described it. He woke up, perhaps another way to describe it. He embraced the gospel, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, turned from his life of pretty horrible sin to dedicating his life to Christ. Augustine's one of the most important thinkers in the history of the Christian faith. He was born again, and he used that enlightened will that God gave to him to flee from sin and to run to Jesus. Like every other Christian, he clothed himself in Christ's righteousness. 
He was in Christ Jesus, and at that moment, there was no more condemnation for him. This is Romans 8.1. But even though he was converted, that does not mean that he was free from the pollution of sin. Conversion does not eliminate sin in the life of the Christian. We are still engaged in war. That's why we need to continually clothe ourselves in Christ. So, in other words, we already have put on Christ's righteousness for our justification, but we must continually put on Christ for our sanctification. Imitating Christ's example and living in fellowship with Christ. You can read about Jesus' temptation to gratify the desires of his flesh in Matthew chapter 4. If we're trying to think through what does it mean to put on Christ in the face of temptation to pursue the desires of the flesh, consider Jesus' example as recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4 where he uses scripture to fight back against the devil's fiery darts. Read there perhaps maybe this, later this afternoon and be reminded how Jesus uses scripture to fight temptation. Life in Christ is befitting of who we are becoming. The word behind provision here in this verse means forethought. Forethought. So if you're going to take a long trip, you need to have provisions. And so you look ahead in time in your mind and anticipate everything that you would need for that trip in order to make it easy or successful. And so Paul is saying, don't do that for sin. Don't look ahead to see how you can make your sin easier or more successful. Don't entertain thoughts that will lead you into sin. Don't daydream about finding comfort from your boredom or sadness in sin. And we can walk through chapters 12 and 13 of Romans and get very practical about what that looks like. Don't plan on getting vengeance on your enemies. Don't dishonor the governing authorities. Don't fail to love your neighbor by disobeying God's law. Don't entertain thoughts of gluttony, sexual immorality, or quarrelsomeness. So if Romans chapter 12 begins this ethical turn in the book, he's really helping us there look back to the resurrection, helping us realize who we are in Christ, looking backwards, and chapter 13 ends now looking forward. Chapter 13 is looking forward to the return of Christ to help us understand who we will one day be in Christ. We live between those two events, the resurrection and the return. And we live in the meantime in the flesh marked by the sin of our father Adam. But the Christian is united with our brother in, in faith, Jesus. And so we begin to be remade in Christ's bright image and less in fallen Adam's image. This is what it means to put on Christ, to put on the robe of Christ's righteousness. And to do that, to put on Christ's robe of righteousness and then stoop back into the vile, nasty, obscene muck of sin is to completely misunderstand what we've come from and where we're going. If you have not put on Christ yet, this invitation is for you. This command is for you. You need a righteousness that does not come from within yourself, but comes from without 
yourself. And it is yours by faith. It's yours for the taking. I'd be glad to talk to you in the, uh, the lobby after the service about that. If you're considering that, if you have questions about what that means, if you felt the light turn on in your heart and mind as God's word has been read and preached this morning. Friends, let us live as lights in the darkness. Let's live in a way that adorns the gospel and accurately portrays the beauty of the gospel. By God's grace, let us continue to make Trinity Bible Church like a moon tower on the corner of 35th and Peoria, defending and extending the light of God's grace in the face of darkness. Let's pray.